Welcome back to our study of the Psalms. We are looking at Psalm 14 today. And so let's jump into that Psalm. I'll read it for us. Uh, it begins by saying, To the choir master of David. So this is the Psalm of David. And he says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Okay, so this opening line, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a line that uh, I've heard a, a lot of times. I'm familiar with it. It's probably the same for you. But I hadn't really understood it until I paused to think about it, uh, preparing to teach through this psalm. And the part of it that I hadn't really thought about uh, that uh, changed the way I understood it is the little phrase where it says, says in his heart. It's not just that the fool says there is no God, right? When we hear that, we think in terms of atheism, right? Those who just deny outright that God even exists. But he's not saying the fool says there is no God. He says the fool says in his heart there is no God. And that means this is something that this person is not saying to the world. It's something he's saying to himself. Why would he be saying to himself? Why would he be saying in his heart there is no God? Well, I think we get a clue in Psalm 10, verse 11, where it's talking about the wicked. And it says, he says in his heart, so there's that same idea again. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So there the wicked person is saying to himself, is saying in his heart, God has forgotten. God is not paying attention. He's not going to see this. In other words, I don't have to worry about God holding me to account for this wicked thing because he's not paying attention to it or he will have forgotten about it or whatever. So here in Psalm 14, when it says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool seems to be doing the same kind of thing. He's telling himself there is no God. Therefore, I don't have to worry about being held to account for my sinful actions. I don't have to worry about God, uh, God's judgment, right? Because there's, there is no God. There's no God who's going to judge me or hold me accountable. That's what he's telling himself. And he's telling himself that because he is doing wicked things that God is going to hold him accountable for. And if he believed that, it would be harder for him to do it, right? He would be feeling that weight of guilt um, or whatever. And so he is telling himself in order to either assuage his guilt or prevent him from feeling guilty or or uh, or prevent uh, himself from uh, not going through with whatever wicked plans he has. If he starts to think, oh, but what if I get caught? What if God knows? What if God holds me to account? He tells himself, there is no God. So it's not that he's necessarily an atheist in the strict sense of denying that God exists, uh, but he's telling himself, he's 
he's what some people have called a, a practical atheist, right? He's living as though there is no God. He's trying to persuade himself there is no God uh, so that he can live as though there is no God, doing wicked deeds without thinking that he will be held accountable by God for them. Um, and so then David begins to talk about the wickedness that um, these foolish people commit. He says they're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. Uh, so they're doing all kinds of wickedness. They're corrupt people. Um, and then he says in verse 2 that what the wicked is telling himself or what the fool is telling himself is not true. Right? He says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. So not only does God exist, but he is watching. He is paying attention. He is, he is observing. He knows. So the fool is telling himself there is no God. Or uh, like the wicked in, verse, in, a, in Psalm 10, God uh, it tells himself God doesn't see. Right? He'll never see it. He's hidden his face. David says that's not true. God is watching. God does see. And then he says uh, what he's looking for is to see if there are any who seek God. And verse 3 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the answer is when God looks to see if there's any who seek God, the answer is no, there's not. There's none who seek God. There's none who are good. They all turned aside. And those words might sound familiar to you because Paul quotes them in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, uh, Paul is summing up his argument so far in the book, and he says, we've already charged that all are under sin, both Jews and Greeks. And then he says, uh, starting verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, the question is, in Psalm 14, it sounds like Paul is saying this is true of the wicked, but he's going to, uh, in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6, um, distinguish from the wicked another group of people, uh, right? Those who are God's people, he calls them my people in verse 4, uh, the generation of the righteous in verse 5, and the poor in verse 6, uh, who the Lord is their refuge. So, Paul applies these verses to everyone in Romans 3, but in Psalm 14, it looks like they're only applied to the wicked and not to the righteous. So how do we make sense of that? Well, uh, pretty simply, what Paul is saying is that outside of Christ, what's true of the wicked in Psalm 14 is true of all of us. And David would not disagree with that. But what David is talking about, and this is what the wicked are like, but how did those who are God's people, who are the generation of the righteous, who are the poor, who take refuge in the Lord, how did they come to be those people, right? Well, these are the people who trust in the Lord, who've turned to God, who are, you know, making him their refuge, putting their trust in him. It's the same thing that Paul is talking about in Romans 3, where after he describes the wickedness of all humanity, he says, uh, but here's what Christ has done, right? Christ uh, has come to be our righteousness, to be the propitiation for our sins. So for everyone who trusts in him, there's there's justification, there's there's righteousness, uh, there's redemption, and so on. So it's not a contradiction, and Paul is not misusing those verses. It's just that Paul is emphasizing that before we come to Christ, we're all in that category of 
the wicked. David is simply talking about, here's what I'm seeing right now. I'm seeing people who are wicked, and I'm seeing people who are righteous. But Paul is answering the question, well, how do those people who are righteous, who belong to God, how did they get there? And what were they before? Before, they were a part of the wicked. But when they turn to Christ, right now, they're a part of God's people, and they are righteous. Okay, so David goes on, verse 4, to talk about the ignorance of the wicked. He says, have they no knowledge? Right? Don't they know, in other words? What are they? What should they know that they don't seem to? He says, all the evildoers eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. Right? So what these wicked people are doing is they're consuming God's people, devouring them, as it were. They're not calling upon the Lord. And I think what David is saying here is, don't they know what God does when his people are taken advantage of, um, attacked, uh, abused, devoured, oppressed, whatever? Uh, and he's going to talk about that in verse 5 and 6, right? He says, there, uh, there they are in great terror, talking about the wicked, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So they have opposed God's people, right? who are the same people he's, he uh, means by the generation of the righteous, I think. Uh, they they are devouring these people, and then at some point they become they have this overwhelming terror, this great terror. Why? Because God is with the people that they have been working against, that they have been taking advantage of. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of God, but that's exactly what they've done by attacking God's people. Verse six, he says, "You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge." Right? So you would seek to harm the poor, but God is the refuge of the poor, of the weak, of the vulnerable. Right? And so you have put yourself on the wrong side. Uh, don't, and that's, I think, where the question comes from. Have they no knowledge? Don't they know? Don't they realize what they're doing by attacking God's people and those that God cares deeply about? They are putting themselves not just at great risk, but they are... Um, putting themselves in the path of experiencing God's judgment for their wickedness. And then finally, in verse 7, he says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. So he's praying for salvation to come out of Zion. Zion here meaning simply Jerusalem. Um, he says, When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now here, right at this last verse, we can make a, a really clear connection to Jesus. right? Because Jesus comes to Jerusalem in order to accomplish salvation. David's praying for Zion to come out of Jerusalem. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He enters on a donkey right, um, at the triumphal entry on what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. He comes to Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem, he comes to lay down his life. He's crucified outside the city gates. He lays down his life uh, in the place of sinners. He's buried, and then he rises from the dead on the third day to accomplish salvation for all those who trust in him. And then he tells his disciples not to leave Jerusalem until they have received the promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. And then when they receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, he says, um, you know, you will be my witnesses. So he's talking about, like, this is what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, meaning that message of salvation is going to come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem. It, it happens 
there at Jerusalem, and it spreads first from Jerusalem out to the uttermost parts of the earth. So David's prayer that salvation uh, would come out of Zion is answered through Jesus' death and resurrection and the preaching of his death and resurrection. And uh, Jesus, of course, is the one who restores his people and gives them reason to rejoice, right? To rejoice and be glad. So <clears throat> that's our connection to Christ. Now, quickly, how can we pray from Psalm 14? Well, one thing we can do as we're praying is we can acknowledge the sinfulness of humanity, that people are corrupt, that people do wicked things, that they oftentimes act in ways that are foolish, seek to persuade them thing, themselves of things that are foolish and untrue, uh, to keep them from feeling guilty about the wrong things that they're doing. Right? That's true. And we should acknowledge that. We should uh, remember, though, that God knows that the things that people try to hide from God, the things that people think God doesn't see, God does know. And that's true whether we're talking about something in our own lives that we're thinking, maybe trying to persuade ourselves, maybe God doesn't know, maybe God didn't see. He does know. And he wants us to confess uh, but also those things that the wicked seem to be getting away with, uh, where we even as as Christians might look on the wicked things that they're doing and wonder, doesn't God see that? Yes, he does see that. Now, he doesn't always respond to that um, as quickly as we would like for him to, but that's one of the things we can pray for. God, I know you see this. Please do something about it. Uh, we can remember also in prayer that God cares for the poor and for the righteous. God, you care for those who are being oppressed. You care about what's happening here. I know that you do, so please do something. And then finally, we can pray for salvation, restoration, and celebration. All that comes out of verse 7, right? David's praying for salvation to come out of Zion. He's praying for restoration of God's people, and he's praying for celebration and rejoicing um, when that happens, and we can pray for the same thing. God, bring salvation, bring restoration, give us cause to celebrate as you save people and you restore what was lost and broken, uh, that we might have joy in you. So I pray that uh, that helps you understand Psalm 14, um, and God bless.